Megan Barker, welcome to Jammin' and Jammies. We are sitting down with some of our favorite music creators and industry leaders. We're going to learn how they got where they are and get some valuable insights into the music industry. You can watch the interviews online or tune into the podcast. Just check out jamminandjammies.com for all the details. Today, we are sitting down with Bill O'Hanlon. I'm really excited. Bill is an author who has had over 30 books published. He's a psychotherapist and author turned songwriter. And in recent years, he's combined forces with some of Nashville's biggest songwriters to start writing books on songwriting. So lots to talk about. This is fascinating. Let's welcome him. Bill, how are you doing? Good. I, we were talking before we came online that I used to be a hippie back in the day. And during the <laughs> pandemic, I just let my hair grow. So now I'm an old Gandalf looking hippie. So. <laughs> you know what? I think we need more hippies right now. It's perfect. Oh, definitely. What's so funny about peace, love, and understanding, as uh, as we heard in the song years ago, I'm still into that 60s philosophy for sure. Amen. Well, let's let's go back and talk about some of that. Take us back to the beginning and just tell us where you're from and how you got into writing as a whole. I grew up in a pretty musical family. Everybody in my family, almost everyone in my family plays or sings. And our family gatherings were filled with music, but nobody really went into it as a profession. I considered doing that when I first went to university. I wrote songs starting when I was a teenager. I was a very shy and introverted kid. And I listened to a lot of music and read a lot. So I had an active imagination. And I started writing songs when I was about 15. Uh, I play guitar and I, I play a little piano. And um, so I went to college and I started writing songs, pouring out my heart as you know, most college students, you know, they write poetry and I was doing that and I was turning some of them into songs, but I was just way too shy to play in front of people. And I, I really, I thought, well, I could be, you know, like for me, my era was James Taylor, Joni Mitchell, Jackson Brown, all that kind of singer songwriter stuff, Cat Stevens, but I just couldn't get it together. I was a little too disorganized, a little too shy. And I, at the same time, I had some mental health struggles. I was depressed. I was anxious when I was younger and I got depressed, almost did myself in and a friend talked me out of it. And so I made promise that I wouldn't do myself in. And then I'm like, okay, I'm stuck here. What am I gonna do? And um, I decided, you know, I'm really interested. Why did I get so depressed? And why did I have these struggles? So I got interested in psychotherapy. I was a psychology major. And I went to graduate school and became a psychotherapist. And at the time there wasn't licensing, but later I became a licensed psychotherapist. I was trained in uh, marriage and family therapy. Great background for being a songwriter. I can tell you, you learn all the stories about love and heartbreak and all that stuff. And, um, and the universal patterns of that. And I also did individual therapy. So I worked with people and I did hypnosis. I learned a particular kind of hypnosis, very gentle and permissive hypnosis from an amazing psychiatric guru, a psychiatrist named Milton Erickson. Um, and uh, he had a great influence on me. He, he fit with my hippie philosophy of the answers within. You don't have to you know, make people see, you know, fit into some normal or diagnostic category. Everybody has wisdom within, you just have to draw upon it. So that, that really inspired me. And even as a young person, even still being very shy, I couldn't wait to tell everybody in the world about his work. So I started to speak much to my surprise being a shy person. And I overcame my shyness and I started to become a speaker. 
as well as did psychotherapy. And then after 10 years or eight or 10 years of speaking, people would come up to me and say, where's your book? And I go, oh, no, no, I don't know anything about writing a book. I've never written a book. I, I'm a little too disorganized, a little too sparky for that. But eventually, so many people said it to me. And I'm like, okay, I love to read. Maybe I should try to write a book. And I did. My first book was Blood on the Keyboard, three years. I hated every minute of it, but I loved when it was done. I, as Dorothy Parker has a quotation, I don't like to write. I love to have written. And I certainly had that experience. So I loved to have written. And once I did one, the second one got easier. First one took me three years. The next one took me nine months. And after that, I just kept having ideas for books. I'm, you know, again, I lived in my imagination most of my childhood. So I had a very vivid imagination. And I started writing books more than I ever imagined. And uh, by the time I got to 17, I got it down to, I could write a book in a couple of months part-time. And I just got faster at it and better at it as one does when one works in anything. And I was traveling around the world teaching and uh, speaking all over the world and making good money for a former hippie. I didn't know what to do with it. Um, and I, uh, years later, I was still traveling around the world. I'd written over 30 books. It's 39 at the moment. I'm working on my 40th. Um, and uh, one of them got me on Oprah. I'll just, I had it here because I knew you were going to ask about it. Do one thing different. That's the one that got me on Oprah. So that's my big claim to fame. Um, and I got really tired of traveling. I was traveling three or four times a month. And I still always played music. And I wrote about 40 songs through 40 years. Whenever I had the moment and something inspired me. But I wasn't really working at it. And I hit a place where I was so tired of traveling. But I still wanted to do this work that I was passionate about. Because I felt I was making a contribution to other people. And I decided to put all my work online. That took me a few years to figure out. But once I did, and again, for a psychotherapist and an old hippie, I never learned anything about business or marketing, but I had to become a business person to do it and a marketing person. And I learned to do it so well, surprised myself. I made enough money to pay off all my debts. I paid off my house. I paid off my car. I paid off my student loans, all that stuff and uh, saved up enough money so I could retire modestly if I wanted to. And I was like, well, okay, what do I do now? I've gone way past my dreams. I thought, well, I always wanted to be a songwriter. I don't want to be a singer songwriter anymore because I'm done traveling, mm -hmm. but I would like to be a songwriter. I really like to see if I could give that a try. And I Googled songwriting workshops and songwriting coaching. And I found a few mentors and mostly they were in Nashville. And so I thought, I'm going to Nashville. So now I live in Nashville part-time, half-time. And I started to get serious when I went to Nashville, as you know, people take songwriting seriously. And songwriters are heroes in Nashville. They're like nice. famous actors. You see one, you go, oh, that's Tom Douglas. Look at that's Tom Douglas. He wrote the house that built me. There he is in our restaurant. And no place else are songwriters that famous. Most songwriters, I mean, Jimmy Webb or a few people have gotten to that. Paul McCartney has gotten to that level of fame. But most songwriters, most people don't know who the songwriters are. But in Nashville, they revere songwriters. And also they take it seriously like a job. And I heard this, you know, they get together in the morning with two people that they never met before sometimes or that they know, and they write a song. Then they go out to lunch, get together with two other people in the afternoon sometimes. I'm like, what? How do you get inspired at 10 o'clock in the morning or at two o'clock in the afternoon? And, um, but people do. And I learned to do that. I learned to co-write, which I'd never really done. 
And I met a bunch of songwriters who were mentors to me and, and inspirations to me. And um, as you mentioned, I met some hit songwriters. And when they found out I wrote books, they said, oh, I've always wanted to write a book. And so I said, well, I know how to write a book. I mean, that's easy. Songwriting, that's hard. But <laughs> book writing, that's easy. And so we combined our forces and I've written three songwriting books so far. First one with uh, one of our mutual acquaintances, Marty Dodson, who uh, co-runs Songtown with Clay Mills. This one's on lyric, it's called Song Building, Mastering Lyric Writing. And then um, I told him that when I came to Nashville, I'd never co-written and I'm a big reader. So where's the books about co-writing? He said, what do you mean? There's no books about co-writing? I said, no, let's write one. So Clay Mills and Marty Dodson and I wrote the Songwriter's Guide to Mastering Co-Writing. And all these ideas in these books are them. They're hit songwriters. I was just the student. And I figured, well, I'll learn this stuff really well if I write a book with them about it. And the latest one with Clay Mills is Mastering Melody Writing. So it just came out this year, uh, 39th book. And I'm working on a 40th one with a, a person who runs a big sync agency in LA. And it's called Sync and Grow Rich with Jess Furman. And that should be out next year. So we're, we're a few chapters into it. So. Stop me before I write again. And I got really serious about songwriting and I started writing over 300 songs a year. So far this year, I've had 328 songs completed and a few partially completed. So I got really serious about it and I'm loving it. I'm loving it. I'm loving it. I'm loving it. I honestly don't know where to start. I had questions about the psychotherapy thing. I have questions about the aspects of being an entrepreneur. And maybe we could go back just for a second. I mean, I know that this podcast, this interview is mostly about music, but I, I think when you're in music, you have to become an entrepreneur, especially nowadays. You've got to work your connections. You've got to know how to put your stuff online, social media, all these things. I mean, don't even get me started on like setting up production stuff and touring and all of that. But so- I'm curious about the aspects of writing a book now uh, about like the artwork and the editing. I mean, do, do you do all of this stuff or do you outsource at this stage? Outsource. Uh, okay. well, we usually ask songwriter friends to be our editors, our initial editors, sure. and make sure they catch typos or glaring errors. Yeah. And then we go over it again and again. But all the, the book design and the uh, we have input into it, but we hire experts to do that and someone to design the inside of the book and um, get the book online to Kindle versions and print versions, yeah. things like that. So yeah, we hire all that stuff. And I've done self-publishing and I've done traditional publishing that do one thing, different book was published by uh, HarperCollins and big New York publisher. And I had an agent for it with a big advance, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. So um, I've done both. Um, there, there's pros and cons to both. But as you say, these days, even if you have a big publisher or a big, if you sign a big record deal or you've signed a publishing deal as a songwriter, you better be, do your own marketing, your own PR. You better learn to do your social media. It, it, you know, I've always heard in Nashville when people say, you know, once you get the publishing deal or you get your artist deal, that's not when it's over. You haven't won. You're just starting. You really have to learn how to promote yourself, how to get, you know, right. how to do social media in a way that's, you know, has integrity for you and works. Yeah. And I had to learn all that marketing and social media stuff. And you can tell by the shade of my hair, I'm not a digital native. I, you know, I, you know, I remember one time talking to my son and he said, did they have cell phones when you were growing up? I said, no. He said, really? How did you live without cell phones? <laughs> 
somehow we got by. But, um, you know, I'm not a digital native. I was born before they invented the internet. And, um, and they didn't have personal computers when I was born. That's how old I am. And so, um, but I, you know, being a curious person, I knew how to learn. And if I was fascinated with something, I'll teach myself. And if I don't know it, like with the songwriting stuff, I'll go find a teacher or a mentor. And, you know, if you're not good with social media or you're my age or whatever, hire a younger person who knows their way around that world and is patient enough or, you know, needs money enough so you can pay them. Uh, <laughs> they can teach you social media. And, you know, I know your partner is, is a master at social media. So you find somebody like that who's just like, he knows his stuff and, you know, he, he can do it way better than you can. So you either pay him or you get coaching from someone who knows how to do that, either a friend, if you don't have any money or somebody that actually makes a living at it. And I studied at the feet of songwriters and social media marketers and marketers because I wanted to succeed at what I was doing in these days. As you say, you have to become your own business person. A songwriter is a corporation really, and it's, yeah. whether you're or not you have to do your own business and marketing and you better be savvy about the business or you'll get taken advantage of absolutely like it or not this is kind of the game if you want to play that's the way it's got to be I, I really love that you said you're willing to learn I think that's honestly I think that's the key to being a human but especially in a creative environment you have to just be willing to learn because we're constantly learning especially technology is always changing and uh I kind of you really hit on it too when you sign a record deal, you sign a publishing deal. A lot of people on the outside think, oh, well, you've made it. And you're right. That's when the real work begins. Um, I kind of look at it as like a party that you've always wanted to get invited to. And then once you uh, sign a deal or whatever, you're invited, but then you got to go in there and make a good impression. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so you get invited back. So uh, that's interesting. And I love everything you're saying about outsourcing and don't be afraid to ask people about social media. Um, my partner does do like social media advertising. I've learned so much about Facebook ads, YouTube ads. So side note, I know this is about you, but I would encourage everybody to learn about uh, digital advertising. So like posting on social media is one thing um, and that's not really his area of expertise, but running ads is something that we all do and no one talks about, so. And it changes all the time. So you want to have somebody who keeps up on the latest uh, things because sometimes it changes and your old thing doesn't work anymore. Right. But you know, as you say, that's sort of the key to most areas of life. Yeah. The good news about human beings is the bad news is we're born unable to take care of ourselves because we have to be taken care of when we're infants. But the reason for that is, is that our brains are constantly changing. And we found out in psychology, which was my major, that we used to think, oh, people's brains learn and develop and they grow until you're about late teenager, early adult, and then they stop growing and you just have that number of brain cells and that's it. Turns out that's not true. The cool thing about Thank human God. beings, we can adapt at any time in our lives and learn new things and grow new brain cells and make new connections. And that's true with songwriting. When I first came to Nashville, my influencers were back in the day. And I would play my songs and people say, that sounds like James Taylor, the Eagles and the Beatles. And I would say, yes. And they would say, no, that's <laughs> not what we're looking for. That's not what's current. Right. It sounds dated and it's great stuff. If I were looking for something from the 90s, right. that would have been great. But now it's a different thing. It's a different rhythm, different vocabulary, different melodies. Right. And you have to be contemporary. And I started writing with people who were better at those vocabularies and those 
musical styles. And all of a sudden I started to incorporate that. So now I can write with that, or I specialize in one area and they can specialize in making the melody sound more contemporary. So it's the same thing in songwriting. You better learn new stuff. And I hear, and I'm sure you do, oh, you know, this new stuff on the radio, it's terrible and I hate it. It's not like what I grew up with. Well, of course, music always changes. Otherwise, we'd still be just pounding on some logs and we'd all be jumping around right. to the log, to the log song that was <laughs> that was a hit back in the prehistoric times. But right. you know, I think it always changes, which is the great stuff, the great part and the bad part about music because you can never master it. It always is growing and changing. And you hear something say, wow, I thought we only have 12 notes in the Western, you know, vocabulary and look at what we've done with those 12 notes. It keeps growing and changing rhythmically, melodically, lyrically. It's amazing. I love it. I think it's so cool to be as part a part of music and the creativity, as you said. Isn't it fascinating? We can never master it. I mean, some people might think that's like daunting or make them want to quit. I think it's exciting. I it think is. if There's you're always a new place to go. And people that we know that are hit songwriters are like, yeah, I still got so much to learn. I haven't written my best stuff yet. That's the way I want my whole life to be. I want to be a lifelong learner and just get better at the stuff that I love and I'm passionate about. Well, you're talking about co-writing a lot. What is something that you've learned about co-writing and about yourself? And then what do you look for in a co-writer? Well, it's a lot like psychotherapy. It's funny that you say and, that. And please tell us exactly what psychotherapy is compared to like psychology. I always, I always joke, you know, I'm, I'm big on puns like Mr. Right here. Yes, um, me too. Uh, I've written all those songs. I've written all those books. I deserve this t-shirt. But um. Yeah, I always joke that I was a psychotherapist with the emphasis on psycho because I was a little <laughs> off center, you know. I was I was I was a hippie, as I said, and I never bought into the traditional stuff. I don't love diagnosis. I don't love figuring out what's wrong with people. I like helping people change and reducing suffering. So, um, I think being in a co-writing room, you sometimes do things that we do in psychotherapy. You get to the deepest truth that you're sometimes embarrassed or ashamed to admit. And you have to dig deeply because what you're trying to do when you co-write is trying to find where maybe there's three people in a room, maybe you've just met one another, or maybe you've written together a lot and you really know each other and you can sort of bare your soul and say things you might not even say to your partner or your spouse or a family member because it's like, wow, you know, it's a little embarrassing, but you know, I felt this, or I had this happen, or I did this. And people in co-writing sessions can be very vulnerable. So you have to make it a safe place, like the best of psychotherapy. You know, it's, I remember seeing, a, uh, you know, some Bob Newhart thing. And, you know, years ago, he played as counselor or a psychologist. And some guy comes in, and he says, you know, I, I, I don't know, doctor, you know, whatever his name was. He said, I just can't say this to anybody. I'm so ashamed of it. He said, look at I'm a therapist. I've heard everything. I don't judge you. And then the guy says what it is. And Bob Newhart says, that's disgusting. And so, you know, it's a nice little joke, but it's the opposite of that. In a co-write, you cannot judge people or be, you know, put them down or shame them. You have to let them open themselves up. The other way, it's a little like psychotherapy. I used to do couples therapy, family therapy, and group therapy. And sometimes in a group, you find a person who's introverted or shy and you have to sort of bring them out. And sometimes in co-writes, there's a, there's a 
a dynamic in the room and I'm right with this uh, one combination of people and this guy is a really great writer but he's quiet he's introverted he's Canadian so that's three strikes against him talking in the room <laughs> and so um, he may know who this is when he watches it but um, <laughs> I'll sometimes say to him hey you've got something because he's been really quiet and he'll just sing the most amazing melody and I'm like you know I, I knew you had something because I've written with him before. And so you have to know the dynamics of people in the room. There's sometimes people that are really talkative or really, you know, forward. And there are people that hang back. And so sometimes I find myself being like the facilitator, the therapy facilitator in the room. And, you know, either leading the way by being really vulnerable and saying something that's really, you know, deep and vulnerable or bringing that out in people or, working the dynamics so um does that frustrate oh sorry no sorry i was just gonna say does that frustrate you or is that kind of your calling in life that even when in the writer room you kind of end up being the therapist right you know it doesn't frustrate me it's 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 sort of uh, i i was the sensitive one in my big family eight kids i was a sensitive one and so i always noticed these dynamics whether i got paid for noticing them or did anything with them at all. I, you know, it's sometimes I used to go to parties and when I mentioned people, I'm a psychotherapist, they say, utilizing me right right? And I say, no, you have to pay me a lot of money to analyze. <laughs> and, uh, but I don't do that kind of psychotherapy. I analyze people. I try and bring up therapy and then later in my songwriting. And I love the collaborative process. I wrote songs on my own years and I wrote 40 songs in 40 years. When I went to Nashville, I got a little more deliberate. I wrote 40 songs in one year and I was pretty proud of myself. Next year, I started co-writing and I wrote 100 songs. The next year, I was co-writing even more and finding my best co-writers. I know some of yours and I know you have some of those magical things. You know, Kelly McKay is a mutual friend of ours and I've heard some of your songs. The magic happens in that room. When you find those people, you write with them as much as you can. And um, I all of a sudden, then the next year I wrote 163 songs. The next year I wrote 250. The next year I wrote 312. This year I'm on my on track to write about 350. And I'm I'm just getting better at it and loving it and learning more and more. And it's again sort of like my psychotherapy career. At first, they shove you into a room with people with real problems, and you're thinking what am I supposed to do? I don't know what I'm doing. And, you know, somebody may die because I just had graduate school. I don't know what I'm doing. And then gradually you get more experience and, and more comfortable doing it. And songwriting, I think, is it's like that 10,000 hour thing or training for the Olympics. The more you do it, if you're paying attention and you're getting better and you're learning from your co-writers, it, the better you get. And it's so fun because there is no ceiling as we talked about. You can just get better and better and write better and better songs. Absolutely. Take, I would love for you to take us into when you met Marty and Clay and how long you guys knew each other, what that relationship was like. I mean, did you ever think you were going to write books about songwriting or did it kind of happen out of the blue? No, actually, my partner said, you know what's going to happen? You're going to get into this songwriting thing and you're going to do online courses on songwriting because I'd done a bunch of online courses on psychotherapy and how to write books and things like that. And you're going to write books about it and teach workshops about it. I said, no, I am not going to do that because I don't have the expertise. I mean, with psychotherapy, I had a bunch of expertise. I only like to write about stuff that I really know really well. 
And then I went out to, I joined Songtown, which was Marty uh, Dotson and Clay Mills online community. And I was like, I was in graduate school and every morning I would get up and watch one of their eight to 10 minute videos, which are really helpful. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, and I also wanted to study with people who've done it, not people who had a theory about, oh, here's how to write a song. They, these guys have six number ones or seven or eight now by now. But when I started working with them, they each had six number ones, a bunch of cuts, a bunch of top 20s and top 40 songs that they'd had. I thought, I want to work with people who are actually doing it and doing it successfully. And I watched all their videos. And then at a certain point, Marty um, Dodson, there are two Marty Dodsons in, uh, in, um, in Nashville. One of them is a female, one of them is a male. I know them both. And they're both part of Songtown. But the male Marty Dodson lives about five minutes from where I live in East Nashville. And he said, hey, let's get together and have a cup of coffee. So we did. We went to Sips Coffee House. And uh, he said, tell me about your book writing thing. And I told him and he said, you know, I've always wanted to write three books. And he told me one of the books. It was the one we ended up writing. And I was like, oh yeah, you know, I know how to do it. So I'll just consult with you if you want it. You know, I figured help people. That's, you know, Nashville is a little big town, as they say. It's not just the name of the group. It's actually what what they used to call Nashville because people in the music industry know one another. And I knew from my previous career that you give before you ask. You always help people if you can before you ask for anything from them. It's just a formula for success in general in any career or yeah. any walk of life. Be unselfish. And, you know, and so I said, you know, I'll help you get a book published. And then I went back to, I live half time in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is where I am talking to you at the moment. And I, my, my superpower is book outlines. I'm just really good at book outlines. <laughs> you know, I'm not that great at writing them. I really had to work hard at that. But for some reason, outlines came easily to me. And I came home and I'd watched all of Marty's um, videos and taken classes from him on lyric writing and uh, been to some class courses with him. And I came home and one day I'm driving in Santa Fe and the outline to his book came to me. I came home, I typed it on my computer, I sent it to him, I said, here's the outline to your book. I'm, that's my superpower, I think this is it. And if you want to write it on your own, here, have the outline. If you want to write it with me, I'm happy to write it with you. He said, I'd love to write it with you. And within three months, we had a draft done and it took us a little while to make sure it was the best that it could be and um, came out a couple of years ago. And, you know, I just love helping other people do it. I've helped probably 12 people by now do online courses on various aspects of music, writing and producing uh, Chris Bradley is uh, somebody I've helped and she does a course called Produce Like a Boss and um, so great by the way plug for Chris Bradley's program yeah, great. she's great and Michael Elsner was the first person I did when I came to Nashville and he has a course uh, called Mastering Music Licensing he's doing really well with Mikey Myers uh, we know is a guitar for songwriting and uh, a few other people that I've helped along the way and um, my part some of them have made a lot of money doing it and I've never charged anybody anything my partner says couldn't you just have asked for a one percent royalty for that and I said no I just wanted to get past the velvet rope in music land and I want to learn a bunch and help other people because I could see songwriters you know this aren't making as much money as they used to and I thought I would love to help songwriters make a living doing what they love and have a sustainable career 
So I've helped probably, you know, four or five people actually earn a full-time living doing online courses. So whatever else they do in music just supplements that. So isn't that amazing? It's pretty rewarding. Yeah. And then helping a few people write books as well, who may not have written books, may have, but may not have done it as quickly or as well. And I, I get something out of it. They always give me access to their courses and I learn stuff from that. Uh, I learn things from writing books with them and then I get to be friends with them. And that's cool. You know what? It really is an amazing time. There are so many more online outlets to find how to write songs, how to produce than there used to be. I mean, even, you know, 10 years ago when I was just kind of getting started in this, there weren't all of these things. I mean, NSAI and, and your, your PROs were kind of it for resources. And now there's Songtown. You mentioned Mikey Myers and Chris Bradley. There's all these amazing Forrest Whitehead has a cool thing that he's doing. Um, there's so many options. And what's great and sad, I think, is, is a lot of people are, are starting these to supplement income because there's not enough money in the music industry like there used to be. But, you know, they really are offering something valuable in exchange. Um, right. And it's, it's wonderful. Want to do it because they want to contribute to people. They already exactly. have enough money, but, you know, Forrest uh, Glenn Whitehead is doing all right. And he's had a bunch of hits and Marty's right. had a bunch. But yeah, I think it's, it's a combination of things. But yeah, I just want to see the songwriting industry especially survive right. because you know, I heard there used to be 4,000 professional songwriters in Nashville. Who knows if that's a true number? And now there's maybe 200 or 400 uh, as streaming has really, and as album cuts have become not so lucrative for people. And I think it's a sad thing because to me, music is a sacred thing. You know, I know it is for you. You and I both have a great love for it. Yeah. And um, it's just such a sacred thing. And I'd hate to see it damage because people can't make a living at it it's too bad you know it's really too bad i'm keeping the faith i think everything's gonna come back around and work itself out um but i really do i want to continue talking about marty and clay because i think you you might call them they've been mentors for you i'm sure you've yeah. had a lot of mentors in your life um is it important for you to become a mentor i mean you're kind of talking about collaborating with people but what about mentoring people yeah, I've done a, a, I've done that in other areas, and I suppose I would do it uh, songwriting. And when I have a bunch of success, I've had there are a few more coming out in the next month, um, you know. And I've had a couple of sync placements, syncing uh, TV and movies and commercials. Uh, that's a good, uh, I think, path for uh, songwriters these days. It's more immediate and more dependable money if you can get it going. And um, yeah, I think. I had a few mentors right at the beginning. Beth Nilsson Chapman was one that took me under her wing early on. And she's an amazing singer-songwriter. And Marty and Clay, you know, some, some people know how to teach. Some people know how to do it. They just know how to do it. And some people know how to teach. Gary Burr, I helped him do an online course. Great teacher. You know, he not only does it, but he knows how to teach it. And so, you know, I love learning from people who are good at teaching and good at doing what they do. Marty and Clay started Songtown and I've been in there for a few years, maybe three or four. And I've noticed the quality of the songs that get played through Songtown just get better and better through the years. You always got new people that are coming in that you know the songs are just good. But I've heard some songs that should be on the radio mm -hmm. and I heard those people's songs three years ago and they were just okay. 
And uh, so I think it's really cool what they're doing. And, and again, these online resources, Songtown being the one that had the biggest influence on me, I think, because I've been in it the longest and they're really, they don't blow smoke. They just, you know, if the song's not there, the song's not there. And their whole thing, you know, when I first came to Nashville and I'm sure it was true for you, I just got to get people to hear my Sorry, great songs. <laughs> Siri is talking to me. Sorry, Siri. I'm talking to someone else. You have to wait. He wants um, to hear your great songs. Yes. Um, so, you know, I thought I just have to get people to hear my great songs and then they'll be on the radio. And Marty and Clay were just like, no, no, your songs aren't that great. You know, and that's basically what everybody who comes here for really thinks the any problem in songwriting can be solved by this one thing, write better songs. And once you write better songs and people hear them, you know, like I, I remember hearing you at Jamming and Jammies playing, uh, you know, I guess you just missed me years ago. And I thought, why isn't this on the radio? Why isn't Megan a really super famous songwriter? Because this is great. I know Kelly and you had another co-writer on that as well, who's just released it. But I just think the, a great song is your best advertising. You can you can do all the social media you want, but writing better songs as you go along and every once in a while you come up with a gem that everyone goes, oh my God, that's the greatest song. They come up to you after you play and say, oh, that song was so great. I loved it. It touched me. And when you're getting that kind of response, you just need to go out and write better songs and then you'll Keep find your way. That's right. They'll find, they'll find their way somehow. Well, I appreciate the plug. Thank you. Oh, Right. Everybody go! Song. Everyone it just got released, right? It, it just got released. Yeah, like the music video came out today, and it got on a big playlist. So everyone go check say out. Say the artist. Right? Say the artist's name, as long as we're going to plug it. Justin Harden. Everyone go look it up. It's a shameless plug. Thank you. But I'm I'm really glad that you brought that up too because I really am passionate. I became passionate quickly, and this is about you, not me. But just a side note about jammies and songwriting is playing out. I think even if you don't want to be a singer songwriter, it's a great way to get inspired to meet co-writers, and I just feel like it is so important. And I quickly became infatuated with the Writers Night in Nashville, which is how Jammies was born. <laughs> I met a lot of people at Jammies that I still write with. Um, I remember going up to a few and saying, giving them my book, which was good calling card with my card in it, my business card in it with my contact information saying, if you'd like to write sometime, I love what you did up there. I find, yes, writer's nights, rounds, I wish they call them in Nashville and songwriter rounds are really great for meeting co-writers, hearing where the bar is for people both that are signed and are doing it professionally and people that aren't yet signed. And you're like, wow, I got to work harder. That is great. And then the third thing is when I get up there and play my songs, I don't have any desire to be an artist. Uh, but I find not only the response that I get to certain songs tells me where they are, but when I'm playing them, I cringe at a certain line or I think, why did I decide to play this song? It's not that great. I find out what I think of my songs when I play them in front of people. Amen. And I think that's what's so great about Jam and Jammies. The other thing in Jam and Jammies is a boatload of fun to see everybody in their PJs. And uh, I usually wear a certain kind of... Uh, yes, you do. I wear, I wear a very noticeable one. But seeing people in their Walmart pajamas is just right. so 
much fun. It was so great of you to think of that and stand out from the usual uh, crowd that have rounds because you just go out and see rounds and they're great, but yours, everybody knows, is great for him. Oh, well, thanks. Oh, this this turned out great. I love this interview. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I really, you know, we met at that, at that venue and I was so charmed by it. You know, just like, this is so much fun. The songs are great, but the venue is really great. And having everybody in their PJs is sort of an equalizer. It's fun. Well, you're so sweet and you're always in the spirit of it. And I appreciate that. It's a lot of fun. It's a good icebreaker uh, to, be, to be in your, it levels the playing field to be in your pajamas. But um, you've talked just so much about songwriting and how to get into songwriting. This is all just such valuable information. And I, I appreciate your honesty from the get-go, by the way, talking about your early struggles. I didn't want to interrupt you, but I appreciate that being honest because it has been a really, really rough time in the music industry, in an industry that's already tough. Um, is there anything that, that you would, um, I guess, any advice or insight in, into, it's already kind of a tough industry, mental health-wise, in this last year. It looks like things are getting better but it's, it's been really tough. I mean, do you have any advice or words of, words of wisdom as somebody who studied mental health his whole life? Yeah, you know, I, a couple of things I guess I could say. One is that human beings evolved in groups. We didn't evolve in isolation. So it's been a challenge and whatever mental health issues one has can sometimes get exacerbated in isolation. Just reach out. I mean, there are help organizations that can help musicians and songwriters with mental health issues and sometimes you know when I was younger I was depressed and almost did myself in I couldn't even get it together to get to a psychotherapist I didn't have any money I didn't realize there were places I could go that I could go for a really small amount or free and even more now than there used to be and so you know don't let that kind of stuff stop you reach out there are musicians organizations that if they know you're having a struggle they can help you there's a free treatment center in Tennessee that is designed for, their, for, um, for musicians. And if you can't afford it, they can find a way to help you. They have grants from, um, from various publishing companies and other music industry labels that want to support mental health. So I think that's one thing. The kind of therapy I did was a different, an alternate therapy to traditional therapy. It doesn't go back to your childhood and analyze what went wrong with you. It doesn't focus on all your uh, deficits and diagnoses. It's called solution-oriented therapy and solution-oriented approach. And um, to me, if I could give you the 25 words or less summary of it, it's find out how you made it through the toughest times in your life and then draw upon that during these tough times. So, you know, there was a time in the past when you faced some really difficult things and somehow you made it through that and there you develop some resources even if you were traumatized or you know depressed as I said you know or suicidal and if you made it through that there's something that helped you make it through that so rather than analyze what's wrong with me why am I so screwed up see if you can reach back into the past and find a resource or a strength or a solution that you previously developed and see if you can use any bits of that now and the other thing is when I was depressed, my friend did a trick with me, which I didn't know was a trick. I mean, it wasn't a mean trick. She just invited me into a future where things worked out. And she did it in a really clever way. I don't have time to tell a story at the moment, but I held on to that. You know, they say when you're at the end of your rope, just 
tie a knot and hold on for dear life. I held on to that while I was still seriously depressed. And um, I think, think of a time in the future when you're through this difficult time and hold on to that and do anything you can to take one small step towards that being your future rather than you know, being a, a, a mess and doing yourself in or drinking yourself to death or drugging yourself to death. Um, you know, that those two things were helpful for me and maybe just in this short time, uh, that'd be helpful for somebody who's, uh, who's hearing this. I really appreciate you going there with me. You know, these things aren't easy to talk about, um, but we all struggle in our own way and especially the last couple of years. So thank you for that little piece of insight. I'd, I'd love to just keep chatting with you because I just think you're the most fascinating person. I think this is one of my favorite little interviews that I've done. Um, I'd love to have you back. Maybe we could hear the story of, of the detailed story of how your friend pulled you out of, of your trouble. Yes, we could talk about just, you know, how do you deal with the most difficult things in your life? That'd be good. And you can have me back when Keith Irvin records one of my songs. And <laughs> well, and of course, we want to hear all about you and your whole life. And it's been fascinating. But mostly, we are just infatuated with you as a person and a songwriter. So I love to keep the focus on music. But thank you for delving into that. Because the music oh, no. industry is hard. It is very hard. It's um, one of the hardest things. Any creative thing, but especially the music industry right now. Yes, I think that's right. It is. And we're faced with so much rejection. And, you know, at a certain point, it does get more difficult. So anyway, thank you very much. But we're going to, I'm going to ask you one more question to end things on right. a lighter on okay. a lighter note. It's very difficult right. to know. All right. I'd love to know your favorite book and your favorite song. Oh, boy. Well, I, you know, I said that there's, I'll start with song because they're, um, there are songwriting heroes in Nashville and, you know, I have a bunch of songwriting heroes, but I was able to meet Tom Douglas, who wrote The House That Built Me with Alan Shamlin, and um, I learned to play that song on piano and I'm just enamored with that song. I think it has everything a song needs to have. It's beautiful melody, yeah. great lyrics, it's universal emotion. And I and I know how to play it, so that's really cool. Um, but <laughs> I was able to meet Tom Douglas, and you know, sometimes you meet people, you think, "Wow, I admire that person so much from afar," and then you meet him, and they're like, "God, they're kind of a jerk." Tom Douglas is the nicest fellow. Um, he's had me out to his house, and we've hung out a little, and we just—I mean, he's just genuine article. And so I'd have to say. I, I have a million favorite songs, but that at the moment is the one that came into my mind when you asked. Uh, favorite book? That's a really good question. Um, my favorite book is out of print, but it, I, I, you know, because I was depressed when I was younger and the way I got through it was to have a belief in the future and possibilities. And I started to call my therapy possibility therapy at a certain time. I read this book called The Mighty Adam, which is out of print. And uh, it's, I think it, it came out in another edition called The Spiritual Journey of Joseph L. Greenstein. The most amazing book. If you ever think that any problem is not overcomable, you should read The Mighty Adams Story. He was, a, he was an amazing person who did amazing things and feats in his life of strength. But that was only a small, small part of it. I've read that book several times and I've read it to a few other people who were going through tough times in their lives. And I really someday want to make a movie based on this guy's life. He was amazing. He was a 
short guy and he became the, the strongest man in the world who could do amazing feats of strength. But that was only, again, one part of his story. He overcame a bunch of stuff and um, was an inspiration to me. So uh, the mighty Adam, A-T-O-M, and now I, it's still out of print. The second edition came out as The Spiritual Journey of Joseph L. Greenstein. And I think the last time I saw it on on Amazon, I was like 50 bucks for a used copy or something. Oh, wow. So you have to be a fanatic if you're going to do that or take my word that this book will change your life. So. Maybe we could all pitch in for coffee and pass it around. Yeah. And Just pass it around. I yeah. think that'd be great. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. I love it. Well, thank you so much for sharing. I mean, I'm not, I feel like we could talk for another hour, um, but we'll have to just do this again sometime. Yes. Well, thank you again. Good to see you. And I'll see you when I'm back in Nashville. It's good to see you too, Bill. Thanks so much. And we'll see you soon. All right. What y'all trying to do?